Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Zach, any new grants this week? We do. We have one new grant. The court agreed to hear Atchison Hotels v. Lawfer. The court will decide whether a self-appointed Americans with Disabilities Act tester has Article Three standing to challenge a place of public accommodation's failure to provide disability accessibility information on its website, even if that tester lacks any intention of visiting that place of public accommodation. You know, this is an interesting issue. When I was a district court law clerk, this issue came up all the time. I'm delighted to see the Supreme Court taking it. Yeah, it will certainly be very interesting to see what they do with this case. And as you say, it could have broad-reaching implications. GC, what do we have for oral arguments this week? All right. First up, we had a few. Uh, we won't cover them all in the interest of time, but um, it was overall a very heavy uh, crim law week uh, for the justices. The first one that I'll talk about is United States versus Hansen. Uh, this will decide whether a law making it a crime to encourage or induce unlawful immigration for commercial gain violates the First Amendment's protections for free speech. So in this case, Hansen employed two immigrants and lied to them to get them to stay in the country past the expiration of their visas. He was prosecuted under this statute and in defense said that the statute was unconstitutionally overbroad. On appeal, the government took the position that the phrase encourage or induce should be read narrowly and with an intent element. Now, the government's position seemed acceptable to a majority of the justices who were no doubt thinking about the recent decision in Rehafe, where the court held that where a statute criminalizes uh, constitutionally protected behavior, in that case gun ownership, an intent element must be presumed present in the statute. Next up is Smith versus United States. And no, it doesn't involve me. Uh, <laughs> but interestingly, it did arise out of a case my old U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuted, the Northern District of Florida. And this case is a fishy tale. <laughs> and you'll you're, see why in a minute. <laughs> you're really getting onto this whole bad, bad jokes thing, aren't you, Zach? Those are the only kind I tell. <laughs> so back to the case. Uh, Tim Smith was a computer expert who lived in Mobile, Alabama, and he enjoyed fishing. Strike Lines is a business located in Pensacola, Florida, which sells location data about particularly desirable fishing spots, and it houses this data on servers located in Orlando, Florida. Now, Tim Smith figured out how to hack Strike Lines database and threatened to post their proprietary information on Facebook if they didn't give him ongoing access to other information about certain desirable fishing locations. Now, Tim Smith's home, Mobile, Alabama, is in the Southern District of Alabama. Pensacola, Florida is in the Northern District of Florida. And Orlando is in the Middle District of Florida. And this is important. Uh, and even though Tim Smith never stepped foot in Pensacola, Smith was indicted and tried in the Northern District of Florida for stealing trade secrets and extortion. And he was acquitted of another charge uh, that he was initially indicted for. Now, the 11th Circuit found that venue was appropriate in the Northern District of Florida as to the extortion charge, but not as to the trade secrets charge. His conduct occurred in the Southern District of Alabama, and he stole the information from the Middle District of Florida. But the 11th Circuit, agreeing with the 6th, 9th, and 10th Circuits, said he could be retried for the same offense in an appropriate venue. Smith argued this was not the correct remedy and that the government's failure to prove venue should result in an acquittal and an order barring him from being re-prosecuted for the offense, which is what the Fifth and Eighth Circuits have held. At oral arguments, the justices seemed skeptical of Smith's arguments, pushing his attorney on what, if any, founding-era evidence he could muster to support his position. But the justices also posed tough questions to the government about whether and how this retrial provision could be abused uh, if it's allowed. That is a fascinating set of facts. It is. It's one fishy tale, GC. <laughs> Next up, we had oral arguments in Samia versus United States. The question in this case is whether admitting a co-defendant's out-of-court confession that inculpates another defendant based on the surrounding context 
violates that defendant's rights under the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause. This case arises out of a wild set of facts uh, that has actually been documented in several TV series. But essentially, a transnational criminal organization hired Adam Samia and one of his co-defendants to murder a real estate broker in the Philippines. His co-defendant later confessed to the DEA and fingered Samia as the trigger man in the murder. At their joint trial, the trial judge required that the co-defendant's confession which, as you might recall from your evidence class, could only be admitted for use against the co-defendant, the judge required that confession to be redacted to exclude any reference to Samia and to simply refer to, quote, the other person as the trigger man. Though the judge gave a limiting instruction, Samia still contends his rights were violated. Now, the oral argument in this case, it was lengthy and lively, and based on the questions from the justices, it's difficult to determine how they will ultimately decide uh, this very interesting and very important case. Hmm. Well, that brings us to opinions. We got one this week, and it was Wilkins versus the United States. This was written by Justice Sotomayor, joined by an interesting uh, lineup, uh, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson. And the court held that the Quiet Title Act's 12-year statute of limitations is non-jurisdictional, which means the court has the power to extend it when the interests of fairness require it. So the Quiet Title Act allows someone to sue the government to establish the rights over a piece of land in which the government has an interest. In this case, the government had a limited easement over the plaintiff's property, but uh, – The government allowed the general public to use its easement. The plaintiff sued, saying that this was a violation of the terms of that easement. Uh, But the plaintiffs had a problem. The act includes a 12-year statute of limitations, which had expired. So here's where the jurisdictional angle comes in. If the statute of limitations is jurisdictional, then a court cannot hear a case if it has expired. If, on the other hand, it is not jurisdictional, a court can hear the case, including arguments that the limitation should be told in the interests of fairness. The court held that the statute of limitations here was not jurisdictional because Congress did not clearly state uh, that it was. Complicating matters slightly, however, in previous cases, the court had said sort of in passing that the Quiet Title Act's statute of limitations was jurisdictional. But here, the court called these statements drive-by jurisdictional rulings and said that they were not binding. Justice Thomas, joined by the chief and Justice Alito, dissented on the basis that statutes of limitations in laws waiving sovereign immunity, like the Quiet Title Act, uh, have historically been jurisdictional. And the court essentially changed that rule without saying so. And that brings us this week to our interview with Arizona Supreme Court Justice Clint Bullock right after this. I'm Mark Guiney from the Heritage Foundation, and we are very pleased to bring you the next chapter in the Heritage Explains podcast. Over the years, this show has been so loved by so many people, and we want to keep bringing you the insights into policy and current events that you've come to expect here, while updating the show with a new sound, a new format, and some new voices. Most notably, we're excited to upgrade this show from a one-off format, where we bring you different topics each week, to a serialized format, where we craft deep dives into hot-button issues in the form of seasons, series of shows that focus the intellectual weight of the Heritage Foundation on one topic. First up, a six-episode series on the biggest existential threat to our nation right now, the Chinese Communist Party. Check out the new Heritage Explains wherever you get your podcasts. Justice Bullock, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, John Carlo. So, Justice Bullock, I've had uh, the pleasure of reading a lot of your writings, uh, not only your opinions, but your books and law review articles. And one of the things that comes through uh, them is a profound passion for American political thought. What sparked that passion? I thought. As a youngster, I, I was extremely patriotic, and I, I think as a teenager, I began asking myself, why am I patriotic? <laughs> and that led me to an exploration of, of the founding documents of uh, many of the great philosophers uh, over time, um, and 
it just uh, fed on itself. I didn't even realize that it had become a passion, but you're absolutely right. It, it certainly did, and it remains so today. Is that what led you to law school? So law school was a last-minute decision in college. I had planned a career as a teacher and in mm. politics. A couple of things happened to to get me off of both of those <laughs> trajectories, and I had no interest in law whatsoever. I thought it was a mercenary profession <laughs> and extremely boring, and it was uh, a class in constitutional law in college that uh, led me to realize that the way to make significant change in our society without uh, compromising your principles is not politics, it's law. Hmm. And uh, so I decided to go to law school and become a constitutional lawyer. And fortunately, I literally did not have a single mentor at that time because that person would have said, no one gets to be a constitutional <laughs> lawyer. So I probably would, wouldn't have stuck out uh, three uh, pretty miserable years of law school uh, if, if, uh, if I didn't think that there was that light at the end of the tunnel. And, mm. and it turned out that obviously there was. Now, you didn't actually give up your uh, interest in politics during law school. You ran for a seat in the California State Assembly. You were at UC Davis uh, as a libertarian. What motivated you to do that? What was that experience like? So it was the first time the libertarians were on the ballot in California. We had a fantastic presidential candidate named Ed Clark and and uh, certainly the, the best ever that the party has, uh, has offered. And so I, I wanted to make the party relevant and the ideas relevant. And it turned out to be a great experience mainly because of the debating. I had always been a poor oral advocate, and it was uh, doing debates and having to to answer questions on the spot that really helped me more than anything else uh, overcome my prior uh, uh, my prior uh, uh, insecurities about being a public speaker. And uh, it, it was really a blast. I ended up with 7.1% of the vote, which, as you know, for a libertarian <laughs> is pretty darn good. And also, I got politics out of my system once and for all. <laughs> so you instead chose uh, public interest law, uh, starting your career immediately after law school with Mountain States Legal Foundation. Why did you join them and what did you do? So as a law student, I worked at Pacific Legal Foundation, which was right next door in Sacramento. And so I had heard that Mountain States was the most libertarian of the public interest law firms, and it was headed uh, by a dynamic young lawyer named Chip Miller. And so I interviewed with them, and uh, they looked past my uh, terrible grades and <laughs> saw something in me, and they hired me, and it, it was an absolute blast to be able to directly and immediately go into public interest litigation. What are some of the things you did there? So um, unfortunately, it, it turned out not to be the best experience because Chip uh, was fired after about a year. I learned the very painful lesson that pro-free enterprise is not the same as pro-business. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Mountain States was emphatically a pro-business, not a pro-free enterprise law firm. And we took on the, the, wrong, <laughs> the wrong defendants uh, in a lawsuit involving cable television. And the good thing about that was that for a couple of years, I really didn't have very much supervision. And so I was able to do extremely audacious things. And the main thing that I did was to begin filing cert petitions in affirmative action cases. Mm. This was right after the Bakke decision. And uh, most of the circuit courts were upholding racial preference programs. And I would call uh, people losing in those cases and asking them, hey, do you want to try to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court? And they would always say, we don't have the money to do that. And I would say, 
won't cost you a dime. <laughs> and so they would let this young pup lawyer file a cert petition. And it turned out that one of them hit pay dirt, a case called Wygant mm. versus Jackson Board of Education, a Michigan case. And that ended up, I didn't get to argue it because I had already joined uh, the Reagan administration by the time that cert was granted. But it became the first case in which strict scrutiny was applied in a, in a majority decision to racial classifications in, in the Supreme Court. Uh, honey, I had no idea that that's where Weigand came from. Yeah, it was absolutely so, so cool as <laughs> as a young lawyer. I didn't even uh, early on, I didn't even qualify yet for admission to the Supreme Court bar. So I would have to find someone else's name to put on my my cert petitions. But that one did have my name on it. So you mentioned joining the Reagan administration. You uh, joined the Equal Employment Opportunity Center. What made you uh, do that and why did you um, what did you do there? So I was one of the few conservative lawyers at that time to have civil rights experience from these cases that I was doing cert petitions and and, and they brought me to the attention of the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. So I had job offers from a number of the uh, federal agencies or departments, including DOJ. And someone gave me the, the advice that I have given to many young people since then. Uh, it's better to be a big fish in a small pond than the than the reverse. Mm -hmm. And so I actually turned down an offer from uh, the Department of Justice to go to the EOC. And it turned out to be the one of the luckiest things in my entire career because the chairman at the time, though not very well known, was a guy named Clarence Thomas. And we became uh, instant friends. And well, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've, I've heard that while you were at the EEOC under Clarence Thomas, he shaped or reshaped your thinking about several civil rights issues. Is that true? And if so, how? That really is true. First, I have to tell you that we nerded out over the privileges or immunities <laughs> in course, the, in the slaughterhouse cases. At that, now today, you know, everybody talks about that provision in the Constitution. At that time, no one was writing about it. No one was talking about it. And we discovered that that was one of the things that we had in common. And obviously, his uh, uh, concurring opinion in the McDonald case now is uh, the, the greatest thing that's ever been written on that clause. Uh, but but we had conversations about <laughs> it. Uh, this would have been 1986 or 1987. Um, but Basically, although he agreed with me on the affirmative action issue, he said you can actually do more for the cause by focusing on what came to be known as empowerment issues, school choice, challenging mm -hmm. barriers to enterprise and that sort of thing. And uh, it was there that I, I wrote my first uh, book called Changing Course, Civil Rights at the Crossroads, and I advocated uh, a positive uh, conservative agenda for for civil rights um, and and you know I've I've certainly never lost my my uh, passion for uh, uh, for recognizing a colorblind constitution but he really did nudge me in the direction of of advancing a positive alternative agenda um, one that if it had been uh, seized at, at at after reconstruction we probably wouldn't be talking very much about race today mm. uh but unfortunately it's long overdue and and he uh he really motivated me to take my public interest litigation career in that direction can you tell us about that book you mentioned civil rights at the crossroads what which are the what are the two directions or or more directions we had and in the 30 plus years since you wrote the book which fork at that crossroads do you think we've taken? <laughs> well, we've, of course, taken the wrong crossroads <laughs> at that time. Uh, but here with the, the, uh, the North Carolina and the Harvard cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, I think we're at that crossroads again. You know, and, and 30 years later, especially in the realm of educational opportunities, um, young, uh, low-income black children in America today – their educational opportunities are no better than they were uh, when Brown versus Board of Education was decided. We still have an educational apartheid system. And uh, one of the arguments that I made um, uh, during that time was that we have to prevent government 
from taking race into account because it creates the illusion that we are solving the underlying problems. Because when we look around Harvard University, we see lots of, of different colors and different ethnicities and, and that sort of thing. And it makes us think that, that those problems have been solved when they haven't been solved. Mm -hmm. So you've got to take the easy, uh, the easy out away from government and only then will government, you know, and, and the, the Texas top 10 program is an example of, 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 of a better direction, in my opinion, to go rather than, uh, uh, rather than the elitist form of, of uh, racial preferences that that we have today. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that tool remains. And uh, but, you know, with the creation of groups like the Institute for Justice and and so many others today, uh, there are organizations that that uh, do focus on issues like freedom of enterprise and school choice and that sort of thing. So after your time in the Reagan administration, it looks to me like you put a lot of these ideas into practice, opening up your own civil rights firm in D.C. Uh, and I wanted to talk about one case in particular. You represented a man named Ego Brown. Uh, can you tell us about that case and what it is you wanted to accomplish with your firm? Well, this was this case was absolute serendipity. I wanted to challenge barriers to freedom of enterprise, but of course we have the rational basis test, which is that requires neither a rationale <laughs> nor a basis. <laughs> and uh, uh, there really had not been a, a successful federal constitutional challenge to uh, an economic regulation since the, the 1930s. And so I was looking for a case that would give us an opportunity to revisit uh, those rulings and Ego Brown, I read about in the Washington Post uh, Sunday magazine. He was uh, a shoe shine entrepreneur who had set up a street corner shoe shine stand in Washington D.C. and he was employing homeless people um, who he would give them a shower and a tuxedo and a shoe shine stand and, and put them to work. But as as you know, and everyone else uh, who works or lives in D.C. knows, no good deed goes unpunished in that city. And so they dusted off an old Jim Crow law that uh, forbade boot black stands, as they called them at the time, uh, on the public streets. And so I thought, wow, if ever there was a case um, that would buck the the rational basis test this would be it and sure enough after uh, although it took uh, uh took over a year of litigation um in 1989 the federal district court did strike down that law as a violation of rational basis wow and that really became the prototype case for what would later become the institute for justice representing the little guy against government oppression uh taking a, a long-term strategic view, just as, as Thurgood Marshall did with uh, Brown versus Board of Education, mm -hmm. to change the law uh, over time. And obviously, IJ and other groups have done a terrific job at that. They, they have not yet convinced the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, to uh, overturn the slaughterhouse cases. But a lot of federal district courts and, and courts of appeals and state courts uh, have struck down barriers to opportunity. Mm -hmm. So let me let's talk about IJ. You um you founded IJ, in fact, with uh, Chip Mellory, former boss at Mountain State Legal. Tell us about that that process. Well, after he was fired at at Mountain States, we we met in his backyard and and we vowed that one day we would start a public interest law firm, whose financial support would come not because of the financial self-interest of, of our donors, mm -hmm. uh, but because people shared our ideals, our principles, and our long-term strategy. Um, now, th that today would seem to be very, very obvious and, and actually very, very routine. But at the time, no one knew whether a, a, a public interest law firm on the center right would be able to pull that off. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so uh, Chip and I 
uh, throughout our years. He was also in the Reagan administration at that time. And then when I had a, a chance to um, start the, the Landmark Center for Civil Rights and do the Ego Brown case, and at the same time, uh, I was defending the, the first urban school voucher program in the country in Milwaukee, those two, those two lawsuits really were the catalyst to convince uh, uh, Charles and David Koch, who were our principal uh, funders initially, to say, wow, this idea really makes sense. Uh, the Bradley Foundation and others uh, joined suit. And uh, so uh, in the early 1990s, we were able to, to launch the Institute for Justice with seven employees. And uh, uh, it took us three years to, to win our first case. One of our donors said, we were the best law firm in America that had never won a case, um, <laughs> but we started winning cases. And now I, I don't think a year goes by without IJ having at least one case in the Supreme Court. So uh, that vision turned out to, to be um, to be a good one. Can you tell us about some of those early cases? So uh, one of the early cases, uh, well, of course, we, we vowed that we would defend every school choice program. And uh, so uh, there were there were in addition to the Milwaukee program, there were programs in Cleveland, obviously, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, Arizona and elsewhere. And so we were constantly involved uh, with those cases. And in fact, I, I wrote a book uh uh, after the Zellman school choice decision called Voucher Wars that recounts the, those 12 years of litigation until we got to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but we also um, focused on uh, other issues such as uh, freedom of enterprise. We are One of our first cases involved cosmetology and African hairstyling. We had a case in uh, Washington, D.C., followed by another case in San Diego. Um, and uh, we also took on the issue of eminent domain. Um, of course, IJ ended up litigating the Kelo case, which lost in the U.S. Supreme Court, but we were far more successful in, in states, including New Jersey, where which was our very first eminent domain lawsuit we were looking for the the for a defendant uh who would be a real villain and we found that person uh in the in the person of uh of a hotel developer who wanted to take uh an elderly widow's home and an italian restaurant called sabatini's to build a parking lot for his casinos and in the new jersey state courts of, of all courts, <laughs> we won. And it was one of those unusual cases where even though we, we were the clear victors, everyone ended up winning from that loss uh, after that lawsuit. Mrs. Coking, who we represented, got to live in her house the rest of her life. Sabatini's continued selling uh, Italian food. And the developer became the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so after um you left IJ in 2007 to become the, the head of litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Can you tell us about um what brought on that change and what your mission was there? So I for a few years in between I headed the Alliance for School Choice which uh was was the the leading organization uh promoting school choice legislation around the country, but I really missed suing bureaucrats. And <laughs> one of the things that both the school choice and the eminent domain cases taught me was that uh, state constitutions could provide a, a, an incredibly powerful weapon against government overreach, sometimes going beyond the protections in the federal constitution and beyond procedural obstacles such as standing or or ripeness and the, and those sorts of things and um so uh the goldwater institute approached me about starting a litigation center that would focus on state constitutional issues mm -hmm. and you know as as someone who always liked a, a new challenge um 
I thought that sounded really exciting, and we did start a, a litigation center na- there. Now there are state-based litigation centers in, in over a dozen states. The other thing that was especially innovative about that was that we were creating a litigation program within a policy organization, and that created amazing economies of scale and synergies. Uh, you know, if uh, the uh, the Institute would go to a city and say, you know, we, we really think you ought to repeal this law. We think it's illegal. And by the way, if you disagree, then we will take you to court. And having that one-two combination of the policy and uh, the possibility of litigation proved to, to be an extremely potent combination. Mm-hmm. I, I want to return to the state court constitutionalism in a moment because you've got quite a reputation there. Uh, but I want to pause for a moment to ask about a couple of the books you've written. You've written about a dozen in addition to uh, many law review articles, um, one of which I think fits well uh, into your, our discussion of rational basis just a moment ago. And you called it David's Hammer, the case for an activist judiciary. Now, I don't know about you. <laughs> but I respond to the phrase judicial activism the way you might uh, if somebody says a four-letter word in church. So am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're not only not wrong, but the Cato Institute, which published that book, uh, David Bowes begged me to choose a different subtitle. <laughs> and he said and, – and his trump card was – he said, if you choose this subtitle, you will never be a judge. And I said, David, I'm never going to be a judge anyway. So I'm going to choose the most provocative subtitle uh, that I can. And of course, that came back uh, when I was applying for the Arizona Supreme Court. And and uh, in the merit selection process, I was asked about <laughs> advocating judicial activism. But I, I did choose it because it is provocative. And to me, judicial activism is simply um, the courts exercising their authority and their judgment to strike down unconstitutional laws. That is my definition of judicial activism. When a court takes on the law writing uh, power or or uh, violates its its separation of powers limitations, that in my mind is not activism. It's lawlessness. Mm-hmm. It is the court taking on uh, powers that it it does not possess. Going back to the Federalist Number Seventy Eight, which really. Um, uh, establishes those lines of of demarcation very very eloquently, and uh, protecting um, individual rights and holding the other two branches of government to their assigned uh, powers. That to me is the is is what the judicial power ought to be all about. And uh, call it activism, call it engagement, as mm-hmm. my friends at the Institute for Justice have have come. To uh, uh, to take it either way, that's what the courts should be doing more of, and there's a lot of things courts should be doing a lot less of. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's a good distinction. So, in the context of rational basis, that would be to say mean require rational basis to actually be both reasonable and based on something. That's absolutely right. And uh, for example, in one of my uh, concurring opinions on the Arizona Supreme Court, I've taken on the notion of the presumption of constitutionality that pretty much every court in the country assigns to legislation. Hmm. And that simply, to me, comes out of thin air. Um, why should why should one party, especially the government, walk into a courtroom and enjoy a presumption that what they have done is lawful? And I mean, you know, obviously a presumption of innocence in the criminal context uh, uh, comes uh, quite clearly out of out of our Constitution. But the presumption that the government has acted constitutionally, if ever if ever there was a reason to employ such a presumption, it certainly should not exist today. (laughs) So you mentioned the book coming up during your confirmation process for the Arizona Supreme Court. Can you tell us about that process? Um, Do you know how Governor Ducey selected you? Well, uh, I had known Governor Ducey, as uh, as you may know, he was an ice cream entrepreneur. um, And he uh, he and I got to know each other um, because he was very interested in, in not only 
uh, public policy in the legislative and executive arenas, but in the judicial arena as well. So we had had many uh, great conversations. And we have a merit selection process here in Arizona. So anyone who's qualified can apply for an opening. I had literally never given a second thought to being a judge, um, mainly because uh, as a public interest lawyer, I, I can only think of two uh, that have made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's Thurgood Marshall and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's very unusual because you take on very controversial cases and you take on very powerful interests. And so I, I really had never allowed myself to think of possibly being a judge. But when Ducey was elected and knowing that he it was a systemic thinker in, in his public policy, I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. And uh, it turned out that the Judicial Selection Commission sent seven names to the governor for him to consider, six court of appeals judge, and the one guy who really stuck out <laughs> uh, <laughs> as the uh, as the outlier, yours truly. And uh, Governor Ducey made me his first appointment to the Arizona Supreme Court, and uh, and it's it's just been an exciting an exhilarating experience so far. What would you say is the the part about being a judge that you find most interesting and most fulfilling? Well, I have to say um, it couldn't have happened at a better time. Uh, our political discourse has deteriorated so rapidly and and so uh, uh, so horribly. Um, if I was in the public discourse arena outside of the court. I probably would have lost half of my friends over the last six years or so. And what I love <clears throat> is having seven people of differing backgrounds and and sometimes different philosophies uh, trying to uh, uh, trying to solve a, a legal puzzle that is presented to us. And what I love most about it is that it is the discourse is always civil. It is always rational persuasion. Um, we have never once uh, raised our voices with each other or used any any uh, personal negative comments. And my wife, uh, who just uh, left out the legislature after after two terms, uh, I would often juxtapose my day against hers. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, there was probably never a day in her <laughs> legislative career where she didn't have some sort of uh, uh, un unpleasant conflict with with one of her colleagues, not not only in the other party, in her own uh, same party. And I, I just really, that's to me, that's the way you solve these kinds of uh, issues. And if you dissent, you dissent respectfully. Uh, my signature line, I, I am one, one case shy of having written more dissents on the Arizona Supreme Court than any other <laughs> justice, um, people are saying, what's taking you so long? But um, but my signature line is always, with great respect to my colleagues, I dissent. Mm. And that is, uh, that is very, very heartfelt. Now, returning to a point you had made earlier about uh, state constitutional litigation, you've developed quite the reputation uh, as one of the leading proponents alongside former Justice Thomas Lee of Utah for state constitutional originalism. What is that? Well, and I have to give kudos to a guy who claims that he he aspires to being on a state judiciary, and that is uh, Sixth Circuit Judge Jeff Sutton, <laughs> who literally has written the book on state constitutionalism. Um, but, but uh, you know, we in, in our Federalist Republic – uh, the states are are supposed to provide the primary protections for our individual rights. Um, obviously, that has not always been the case, and that's why we have a 14th Amendment. But nonetheless, even after the 14th Amendment, that uh, principle of, of states as the primary protectors of, of individual rights, in my view, remains true. Uh, but over the the decades uh, since the New Deal, that has really eroded, and that means that precious protections that exist in in the um, in the state constitutions, many of which are unknown to the federal constitution, have really gone uh, unfulfilled. 
uh, or or un, unenforced, I should say. And uh, also, uh, we many courts have taken a lockstep approach mm -hmm. to interpreting their own constitutions in conformity with uh, jurisprudence from the U.S. Supreme Court. And certainly the framers of our state constitutions never intended to hitch the meaning of state constitutions to the federal jurisprudential flavor right. of the day. You know, the Fourth Amendment may be the, the best example of that, um, where the federal jurisprudence is, is uh, zigzaggy and almost impenetrable. Uh, why should we take as a given that whatever the U.S. Supreme Court decides tells us the meaning of, of a similar state constitutional provision? How should how should state courts go about uh, doing their own originalist analysis, abs uh, putting aside the Supreme Court's precedents? So uh, you had mentioned that I'd written a couple of law review articles, and and uh, my most recent is called "Principles of State Constitutional Interpretation," which was published by the ASU Law Journal and uh, republished by the. Federalist Society, um, and I'm very grateful for that. But uh, that's the question I took on there because there really is not, um, you know, you don't have a Scalia, for example, on state constitutional <laughs> interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so I outlined some principles there. And first and foremost is the, the primacy principle. We ought to, if there is a case that involves both the state and the federal constitution, we should look at the state constitution first. And only if it does not provide the same uh, level of protection as the federal constitution should we then go on to, to consider the federal constitution. In our Federalist Republic, that that is the proper role of the states. And it also gives us the benefit of having much greater certainty in our law. Uh, we don't have to worry about the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court because we are the final word on the interpretation of our own constitutions. I also uh, believe that the meaning of our constitutions uh, was fixed at the time it was adopted. So, for example, our constitution here in Arizona was, was created in 1912. To the extent that it mimics the federal constitution in terms of particular provisions, it's the um, juris the federal jurisprudence from that time that ought to inform us about the meaning of uh, of of our constitutional provisions, not subsequent jurisprudence. And so, those are are two of the principles that I articulate there, and uh, and there are, there are some others as well. Maybe too early to say, but how do you think your campaign to invigorate state constitutional interpretation is going? Well, as a, a friend of mine once used the term, you know, it's hard to fall out of bed when you're sleeping on the floor. <laughs> and so we have nowhere to go but up. Uh, obviously, Justice William Brennan uh, was the, the, uh, uh, the, the first major um, – leader in the state constitutionalism movement. And obviously he was focused primarily on, on the, the rights of criminal defendants, which he perceived uh, were eroding in federal court jurisprudence. Uh, so it's been much more recent that the center right has embraced uh, state constitutionalism. Um, and uh, given that it is such a recent phenomenon, I think that it's going really, really well. Now, uh, most center-right organizations continue to focus their um, resources on the federal constitution, and given uh, the nature of our current U.S. Supreme Court, I, I certainly can't fault them for doing that. But the state constitutions were intended, and I think this is Brennan's phrase, to provide a double security for our individual rights. And uh, given that there, there are organizations on both the right and the left that are focused on vindicating those rights, and there's now a conversation among state Supreme Court justices, both in our, in our opinions and in, in person uh, with conferences 
uh, on these topics. Uh, this has really never happened before. So I, I think that it is extremely exciting and that uh, given the, the recency of, of the emphasis, it's going, it's going really well. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Well, Justice, we're about out of time. I wanted to ask you one final question before we let you go, and it is this. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? So that's a that is a fantastic question and I have to I have to say there's really three but I'll I'll uh, end with the main one. One of the great disappointments in my life is that I began getting to know Justice O'Connor very very late in her life and as a as an adopted Arizonan uh she I look to her as kind of the the quintessential Arizonan <laughs> and I just she's an incredibly charming woman who accomplished so much and I really wish uh that that I had gotten to know her earlier. I met uh Justice Scalia a number of times and really had nothing to talk to him about. Um until I became a judge. <laughs> and now <laughs> I would talk to him for hours because he is the master of of the art of judging. And uh the first thing when I came to my court, uh the uh, then last Democrat, uh, most recent Democrat appointee to the to the court, Scott Bales, uh, he said, um, Clint, the first thing you have to do is buy Scalia and Garner. And uh, it's just been uh, the, the most, the single most important resource I've had as a judge. But the person I would really love to get to know is the elder John Harlan. Hmm. I was recently reading a biography of him, and I, I often wondered how this man from Kentucky, whose family owned slaves, came to write the um, inc incredibly prescient um, uh dissenting opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson, it turned out that his dad had an affair with a slave and had uh, a son. And unlike almost everyone else who fit into that category, he acknowledged that son and raised him. And that, uh, that son became a very, very prominent political activist uh, and businessman. And I would love to ask uh, Justice Harlan, whether it was that relationship mm. that really uh, solidified his interest in a, a colorblind constitution. Um, but I, I just think that's an amazing story. And and uh, given that I, too, am a frequent dissenter, um, I would love to, to share uh, stories about being afflicted with what our current chief justice has accused me of, of having <laughs> uh, dysentery. <laughs> dysentery. Yes, exactly. Dysentery. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justice, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been a, an honor to be on it, and please keep up the great work. GC, are you ready for trivia this week? You bet. Well, I want to start by saying you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. <laughs> All right. Wait, hang on. I know this routine. Um, and how's that, GC? A little personal experience? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a, well, several answers. Number one, lots of law and order. Uh, yeah. Number two, uh, number two uh, my wife frequently tells me to exercise my right to remain silent. Uh, and number three, I have never <laughs> learned that lesson. Oh, well, all right. If that's your story, uh, <laughs> then uh, you should stick to it there. Uh, but anyway, I thought we could talk this week about a little crim law trivia uh, since the court heard so many crim law cases at oral argument. Uh, what do you say? You ready to do it? Yeah, I, crim law is definitely your area of expertise more so than <laughs> mine, but let's give it a go. All right. Well, have you ever read Gideon's Trumpet? Yes. Excellent. Well, the first question should be an easy one then. And of course, if anyone hasn't read Gideon's Trumpet, it's a book about the landmark case of Gideon versus Wainwright, where the Warren Court held, somewhat controversially, that if a defendant charged with a felony could not afford a lawyer, one would be provided for him. So here's the question, GC. In what city and state did Clarence Earl Gideon commit his alleged crime of breaking into the Bay Harbor pool room? Well, I know the state was Florida. Um, I do That's not right. know any more specifically than that, though. 
That's right. It was actually in Panama City, Florida, which, ironically enough, while this is a state uh, court case, of course, uh, is also in the Northern District of Florida, uh, just up the road from uh, Pensacola, where the uh, hmm. the Smith case uh, took place. Yeah, your uh, your little neck of the uh, country there is getting a lot of action in crim law these days. <laughs> well, it's uh, job security if you're <laughs> in AUSA. <laughs> uh, all right, GC, well done. Uh, next up, we'll continue on the, the case of Gideon versus Wainwright. And so the question is, who did the Supreme Court appoint to represent Gideon in front of the high court? Uh, because, of course, he famously filed his cert petition pro se. Right. So this was future Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas. Yeah, excellent. Well done. Uh, he was a future justice, and he was working at Arnold and Porter at the time, which, of course, was then Arnold Fortas and Porter. Now, interestingly, he was also assisted by John Hart Ely, who was then a third-year law student at Yale and was working as the summer law clerk at Arnold Fortas and Porter. And, of course, Ely would later become a famous law professor. Well, well done, GC. Uh, you are two for two so far. Now, I thought we could talk uh, about some crim law provisions in the Constitution. According to Westlaw, as of March 29, 2023, which crim law-related provision has been cited the most in court decisions? Has the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, or the Eighth Amendment been most frequently cited uh, by courts? Oh, now I don't know, but I could take a fairly educated guess. I am positive it's not the Eighth Amendment. Um, there's just not that much there. Um, I'm going to guess the f Fifth because it includes so many different provisions. Well, it's a good guess, and it's safe to say they've all <laughs> been cited a lot uh, by courts. But it's actually the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment has been cited the most, uh, followed by the Fifth, the Fourth, and then hmm. the Eighth coming in a distant Fourth. And just for reference, uh, the Sixth Amendment, according to Westlaw, has been cited 171,427 times. The Fifth Amendment has been cited 138,071 times, the Fourth Amendment 110,810 times, and then in the distant fourth place, the Eighth Amendment has been cited 39,946 times. Interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. Now, speaking of the Eighth Amendment, GC, in which relatively recent case did the court hold that the excessive fines clause is incorporated by the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause and therefore also applies against the states. This would have been uh, Tim's. Yeah, that's right. Tim's versus Indiana. It was a unanimous decision. But of course, Justice Thomas wrote a separate concurrence emphasizing his view that incorporation should take place through the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause instead of through its Due Process Clause. Naturally. Of course. Well, well done on trivia today, GC. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.